Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. And we're back. Just when you thought it was safe to put your headphones back on, we're relaunching the podcast series that metaphorically sidles into the kitchen and lifts up the lid of the simmering pot that is UK trade policy. And this first podcast in the new series looks at the big theme of the year, the only theme that most of us have been talking about for the past few months. Yep, COVID-19. It's affected pretty much everyone around the world in different ways. And indeed, we are recording this podcast using exemplary social distancing protocols and a fair bit of technical wizardry. But the pandemic has had a profound effect on trade as well. A global recession is always going to have an impact on trade volumes. But this pandemic has had the effect of completely choking off demand for some goods and services while pushing demand for some others through the roof. And that has posed acute trade policy challenges. Is it ever right to impose controls on exports of sensitive products, as many countries have done during this crisis? Were we naive to put so much faith in global markets and the ability to source the goods and services we need from around the world? And when the pandemic finally starts to ease, what sort of a global trading system will we be left with? Today, we're fortunate to be able to look at these weighty and highly topical questions in the company of some expert analysts. I'm joined by Professor Michael Gassiarek, Professor of Economics at the University of Sussex and a Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Also with me is Ali Renison, Head of EU and Trade Policy at the Institute of Directors. And I'm joined also by Professor Simon Evenet, Professor of Economics at the University of St. Gallen and an Associate Fellow of the Trade Policy Observatory. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. Michael, can I start with you? How resilient, in your view, has international trade been in the face of the pandemic? What's happened to trade volumes and values? What sort of balance is it possible to draw at this point in the proceedings? It's early days to understand what the actual impact on trade has been. If you look at the monthly statistics for the UK, we know that there's been a big decline in trade in February 2020 in comparison to February 2019. So imports are about 15% lower, exports are about 10% lower. So that looks like a pretty big shock. It's hard to know exactly what the sectoral distribution of that is. Out of all the sort of trade that's been taking place out of about 90-odd industries, 72 of them saw a decline in February 2020 compared to February 2019. But it's hard to know what the counterfactual is. What we do know is that the massive demand and supply shock arising from COVID will have impacted on trade precisely how much and which sectors is a little bit early to say. Ali Renison, from your perspective, from a UK trade point of view, have any sectors benefited from this recession? I mean, presumably, if you're in the face mask producing business, then business has been quite good. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's to Michael's point, it's uh, even at a granular level, the stories that we are getting back from businesses changed by the day. I think there has been some uncertainty over the example that you mentioned that you raised there with, for example, protective personal equipment. There has been a lot of, particularly I think for the businesses that have been adapting to change what they produce in particular, that's been quite a novel experience while interacting with a sometimes not always predictable sort of a procurement coordinating scheme in the UK. And I think that's probably not unique just to the UK. You're seeing it in lots of other countries. We are, however, bringing it back to the trade issues. We're seeing certainly amongst the businesses who are trading, and that's about over two thirds of our members. So we have a lot of members who share, who trade internationally. About half have seen a negative impact on their goods trades. It's naturally a lot higher in services, I think, because of the restrictions. When we talk about you know, what kind of businesses might be benefiting from in a trade barrier context or in this kind of scenario, who benefits and who is struggling, it's you know, one of the things that we've noticed from the businesses who are looking at changing or adapting what they produce is that they are realizing that they don't have all the materials. And so it's all well and good, I think, to talk about shifting to move to have this national stockpile of protective personal equipment on the one hand. But I think unless you are, particularly if you are trying to produce it medical grade equipment, and that is the big question that we're finding, particularly as businesses are going back to work, is what is the medical requirement? And we're being advised on the one hand by government not to use medical equipment. There's a lot of confusion about where you should get the parts. Can you just use anything from home? So right down to even our local stores here in in Dundee in Scotland, there's a lot of uncertainty as people are looking to try and adapt their business model, the predictability or lack thereof on supply chains is making that even more difficult. What you would expect is that the impact on non-essential goods and durable goods is likely to be pretty high. And the casual empirical sort of empirical evidence that is out there suggests that consumers have limited their expenditure on things like cars, white goods, even clothing and so on. And that those are the sectors, these non-essential sectors that are seeing the biggest hits in terms of manufacturing goods. Simon, even that we've had recessions and global economic shocks before, but nothing really on this scale. To what extent would you say that the international trading community or the international trading system was prepared for a shock like coronavirus? I would say the trade policy community was as unprepared as every other policy community was for this particular pandemic. Or let's put it this way, unless you're a pandemic specialist and worry about these things, you're about the only people who are ahead of the curve on this one. I think what has been so shocking this time around is that we have not just a collapse in global demand, but also a collapse in global supply as well. And We rarely have both of those shocks happening at the same time. And I think that's what's added to the problems this time. And then, of course, put us in a relatively unique situation. Now, of course, people have had to stay home, but goods have had to keep moving. And I wonder how successfully you think European countries generally have been in facilitating that. The European Commission has had this system of green lanes, trying to make sure that goods are able to cross borders and that essential products are able to be traded from one EU member state to another. Has that operation been successful? What conclusions can we draw at this point? It's a mixed bag. I think in terms of if you look at the different types of transit and transport methods, uh, particularly for the UK, road freight was actually holding up fairly well with some, I think the more actually unpredictable, even with the uh, slightly confusing, you know, it was meant to be clear, but obviously 
when you're trying to set up this kind of green lane system, there's bound to be a lot of chaos and understanding how it works, the jump from policy to actual practicality at the border. But what we're hearing, at least, is that it, it, apart from people who are road hauliers, people who are driving the lorries, who are having problems actually as something is mundane but essential as using uh, lavatory facilities, uh, road haulers were being um, blocked from being able to carry out their journeys because they had to make sure the station facilities were open. And that sort of thing seems mundane, but it's very important when you're trying to predict how much longer your journey is going to take from A to B. But for the most part, we're seeing road freight is, generally speaking, holding up. I think the actual bigger uncertainty is air freight to a certain extent. And obviously, when I talk about road freight, I'm also talking about people coming in through the ports. For supplies coming in by the air, it's been a lot more chaotic. Um, Anything that was coming in from China, the cargo rates were going up to peak record levels in April. Um, Since production has started to resume in China um, and other parts of Europe, but particularly in China, that has started to stabilize to a certain degree. Obviously, when you have airlines that are flying ghost flights, when they have nobody on them, but it's just cargo, you know, there was some pressure in the logistics sector to try and get the government to step in and work with the airlines, or I should say force the airlines to play a ball. I think there's a little slight situation where the, the politics of that, particularly when you're in a situation with an airline looking for government bailouts, that makes it slightly more difficult. But we think that air freight has started to slightly smooth in that respect as countries have started to get back to production. So we've talked about goods, but of course, the services sector has also been very hard hit by the pandemic, especially those services which require people to move from one place to another to to deliver those services. How is trade in services coping with the restrictions? And, you know, is there a longer term fallout, perhaps, from the events of the past couple of months? I mean, I'm just having a look actually at some of the data from April amongst our members. And, and what we're finding, and I'll just put it situated into context, is that 64% of services exporters have seen a negative effect on, on their exports. And if you're going to compare that to uh, goods importers and exports, as I mentioned, it's more around half. And I think for services trade, you know, the temptation is just to focus on the travel restrictions. There are different ways in which, you know, labor mobility can be affected. A lot of the chaos ensuing from coronavirus coronavirus has just fanned out to other parts in terms of the sort of chinks in the armor of government infrastructure and apparatus. Um, We're also seeing, for example, uh, it's I think there was a temptation to look at just goods and services in in the public debate and discourse in silos, when in fact, actually, for a lot of people who are selling goods, you know, if you just limited it to people who are transporting and producing goods, you would lose out all of the people who sell their goods and services together. So for a lot of people who are in construction and manufacturing who have to go and deliver projects, for example, that is a big check on being able to actually carry out that delivery. And then in terms of how that actually operates on the ground, It was slightly similar to in the UK. What we saw in the run-up to each no deal was that uh, on the one hand, the government would strike agreements or arrangements with third countries to allow that to continue in some shape or form. But then in in practice, that hadn't reached, let's say, the customs authorities in Turkey, for example. So you'd see holdups at the border. I think for me, that's the biggest issue with what policy is being created and then what is happening to goods, but also services for people when they're actually on the ground trying to cross the border. 
Yeah, let me add to that. I mean, as Simon said um, a few minutes ago, what makes the, the COVID-19 shock particularly unusual is that it's both a demand and supply shock simultaneously. And in thinking about the impact on any particular industry, it's worth distinguishing between the demand and the supply side factors. So clearly on the demand side, a number of service industries have seen a massive negative shock. And this particularly applies to things like travel, tourism, and so on. Everything related to that sort of line of business has seen a massive negative shock. Other sectors have seen an increase. So, for example, companies such as Zoom, Microsoft Teams, being big expansion in the digital delivery of services for any digital company, computing companies have seen a big increase in demand and computer service companies, you know, people that write computer programs, resilience of computer systems and so on, all of this has seen a big increase in activity. So really, on the demand side, it varies enormously from sector to sector. On the supply side, it depends on the restrictions for delivery of services. And many services do require face-to-face contact and delivery, in particular those services that are embodied in manufacturing. So lots of manufacturing industries use services. That's what we economists tend to call mode five uh, delivery. And any of those sorts of provisions For example, a manufacturing company that needs to send out engineers to fix machines and things abroad or to service those machines abroad and so on, or to provide training on the use of machines, all of that has been negatively impacted. So the impacts are going to be very, very, very diverse. Simon, let's look at some of the policy implications of what's been happening. We've seen quite a few countries imposing bans or limits on exports of essential medical food supplies during the crisis. What's the legality of these kind of measures and how have countries reacted to the very strange situation that they found themselves in? We've seen 85 countries put in place 156 export controls on medical goods and medicines since the pandemic began. Your listeners may find this remarkable, but these export bans are probably almost entirely WTO legal. The WTO rules allow countries to take measures under some circumstances. Whether they should be legal is, I think, a very important question. In a world of supply chains, putting in place export bans disrupts production in many other countries, so it has an adverse knock-on effect there. In a world where medical kit is traded to and fro between lots of countries, if one country puts in place a ban on the exportation of some type of medical kit, other countries can retaliate, depriving the initial country of needed medical equipment during the coronavirus. And perhaps the biggest criticism of all of these things is that the problem we have is a massive demand surge for medical kit, and export bans don't increase supply. They don't fix the problem by bringing supply and demand back into balance. They just temporarily divert some production which has been currently made. And of course, the producers may look around and think, having lost their export markets, what incentive do they have to further expand production? So for all these reasons, there's a really strong consensus amongst, I think, academic specialists that uh, export curbs on medical equipment are completely misguided. What role has the WTO played in keeping goods moving? What powers does it have? What powers does it not have? I see the WTO's role or response as being twofold. At the beginning, the lawyers and the legal tendency at the WTO was to say, well, these export curbs on medical supplies are legal. There's no problem here. But then I think very sensibly, the senior leadership of the WTO saw that if you can't win a case for free trade 
when you're talking about medicines in a pandemic, when can you win a case of free trade? And so they geared up and I think they began to argue very forcefully that we should be keeping supply routes open. And they also had an eye to the future uh, slump in world trade and the possible protectionism that could follow and were making the right noises there. So I'd say the uh, WTO response, at least rhetorically, improved considerably over time. So let me look at this from a slightly different angle. Why is it such a bad thing that countries should prioritise their own essential health care or food supply chains? And should we make a distinction in this respect between rich countries and developing countries? I mean, what, what is the, is there a sort of moral imperative to allow countries to look after their own people as a priority, especially when their options to procure goods from elsewhere might, for financial or logistical or whatever other reasons, be limited? So governments may feel they have a moral obligation to look after their own people first, but that doesn't mean that it's smart to go around disrupting trade in medical goods and in food. In a world where you have supply chains where essentially uh, products are made in lots of different countries being shipped to the final customer, uh, any attempt to try and divert or to prevent trade in any one link has real massive knock-on effects all the way down the supply chain and encourages retaliation back. So I think there's a very pragmatic case for keeping supply routes open at a time like this. Because essentially, we want to provide private sector suppliers of medical equipment and medicines with the strongest global incentive to produce extra output. And that will not happen if production fragments across national lines. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And I think actually more attention needs to be put on this question because otherwise, in terms of trying to explain the arguments for why this is not only in the at the end of the day, wrong, but also counterintuitive. I don't think it necessarily helps at a time when governments are seriously looking or having to respond to cries to reshore and onshore supply chains entirely within their domestic countries. You know, I think people who are advocating for liberalizing trades such ourselves need to be careful to make sure that we are explaining that in a way that doesn't say that we absolutely don't understand the need to look at prioritizing what happens within your own country. But I think it behooves people who are working on trade and integrated into trade to explain why the effects don't just stay in one country whatsoever. And in fact, actually, I think there is a political dimension that makes this discussion sometimes difficult because if you see, for example, China has announced, even though it was an ongoing inquiry from 2018, that it's slapping huge tariffs on imports of Australian barley wheat. And that is obviously being linked in very, very closely to the calls for an uh, inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. Now you can argue that China was just doing this because this was from a two-year inquiry and this is the results of it, of course, it's impossible to ignore the politics of it. And I think the politics of it make it a much more difficult discussion because you are seeing this push to say, well, not only from an economic perspective, but from a political perspective, we should be wanting to make sure we are never in this situation again. The difficulty comes from explaining how you could very easily, and I think this is what is important to stress, you could easily be in that situation again, even if you do have a national stockpile. Because if you're in a situation where suddenly, you know, interestingly, actually, I think, although it might be seem a minor point, 
looking at the outbreaks in plants and factories in the US compared to what's going on in the UK, I think actually that's an argument to say, you don't want to be entirely, you know, let's not have a, a, an argument where we end up flipping the balance back to say we need to be much more dependent on ourselves and realize that we get into a situation where for future waves of whether it's this virus or another outbreak, you're so reliant on your domestic production that you're actually making it more difficult in an emergency situation to source what you need. And that's the point is that there is such an emergency nature to all of this that you don't want to be in a rigid situation where you've acted so decisively that you've actually made it difficult to correct the course once you've embarked on it. America has completely domestic supply chains in the area of pork and beef, and these have now recently collapsed, precisely because a number of slaughterhouses have seen their staff catch the coronavirus. So the conclusion I draw from this is that making supply chains national is neither necessary nor sufficient to make them resilient or robust over time. We have plenty of counterexamples of domestic supply chains which have failed. And so I think what we need to be doing is to ask, how do we design supply chains which can absorb shocks like this and to leave aside whether or not they happen to be on one side of a border or another? Yeah, I think Simon is absolutely right. There's a tendency when discussing supply chains to automatically think of these as international supply chains. But many supply chains are domestic. And in the face of the shock that we've been experiencing, there are very few supply chains that are resilient to this. So to think of how to build future supply chains be they domestic or international, that could be resilient to a shock like COVID-19 is probably extremely unlikely. The shock is so extreme, so synchronized and affecting both supply and demand, it's hard to imagine any supply chain that could be resilient to that. If you cannot produce a good because you have to maintain social distancing and you can't have your production facilities operating, then no amount of supply chain diversification is going to help there. The only way you can build, in some sense, some more resilience is potentially through stockpiling, through the stockpiling of essential goods. And clearly, many countries, including the UK, did not do enough of that or did not stockpile the right types of goods that were needed in the face of the COVID crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think that also gets into a discussion very quickly, particularly whenever the UK's transition period ends and it regains significantly more control over its trade policy. That's going to be a very interesting question for, you know, when it comes to the question of a national stockpile, well, how do you achieve a national stockpile? What conditions are necessary for national stockpile? And I can see very quickly a discussion starting about the way to build a stockpile, a necessary domestic stockpile, is by virtue of keeping competition out to a certain degree. So we are, I feel we are going to get into those discussions, you know, even though there are arguments about to what extent the views on trade or the decisions on trade have been driven purely by economic variables at the moment in the UK, I would like to think we're going to get into that situation because otherwise you are going to have the arguments that you do see in America and other parts of the world saying, well, the only way that we can have a resilient enough national supply chain is to make sure that we are protecting the domestic industries. And this is what we need to do to protect those domestic industries. And very quickly, you know, it was interesting speaking speaking to my father, who was seconded to USTR from working at the Labor Department in America. And he recounted a tale in the 80s where they were going through, you know, what to actually submit for tariff reductions at the Tokyo round. And they were at that point, and I think we need to get into that very quickly, going through the economic statistics of could you prove that if you let that foreign competitor in, that you could do the math to project that that was going to be a loss to domestic industry. And I think we are going to, or we should be going towards that 
preferably in a science-based way. But that, nat- that, that discussion is going to happen very quickly, both in the UK and obviously in other countries where the trade policy debate is much more mature, to say, well, what is it that we need to do to make sure that we have the necessary domestic provision of supplies? And that comes into a question very quickly about domestic industry saying, well, if you really want to help us, make sure you keep those materials out. And that's, I think, going to lead to a very circular discussion very quickly. But I would rather get onto the discussion now, personally speaking, than let it happen. You know, I worry sometimes that we are drifting into trade policy moves that end up becoming permanent rather than thinking very clearly now about how long they need to be in duration for. Yeah, just picking up on the last thing that Ali said, I think you're absolutely right. It's very easy to engage in trade policy responses in the face of a crisis, but which then become long-lasting, which endure afterwards. And one has to think very, very carefully about the sorts of responses one does you know, in the immediate face of a crisis. But what I also wanted to say was that I think in terms of supply chain resilience, it's important to distinguish between whether we're thinking about essential goods, medical equipment and supplies, or more generally. And a lot of the discussion gets conflated or mixed up between the two. I think there's a discussion to be had about how we maintain access to medical supplies in the face of a crisis such as COVID. And there's a separate discussion to be had amongst a broader set of firms and industries as to whether there is any need for greater supply chain resilience or diversification in the future. It's far from obvious that there is a need for this. But equally, I think this is a debate and a discussion that's going to go on for quite a long time. It's been a very interesting discussion to talk about the differences perhaps between policy responses and commercial responses to problems in the supply chain. And we've seen that played out in different ways over the course of the pandemic over the past two or three months. As we come towards the end of our podcast, I'd just like to ask each of you in turn, when this crisis is over, and we pray that it will be before too long, what are the lessons which the world ought to learn in terms of emerging with a healthier and a better functioning global trading system? Are there takeaways that we can formulate already at this point in the proceedings? I wonder what your view is, Simon. I'd start by saying that uh, one of the problems we've had in this discussion over global trade policy is a lack of transparency and information about what governments are actually doing. And uh, governments have been, as usual, tardy in revealing what they've been doing. And it's been very hard to sort of track what governments have been doing and to hold them accountable. So I think that's going to be one important lesson, which is greater transparency. The second one is we are going to see a lot, or we have seen, and we are going to see lots of supply chains be disrupted by poorly designed government intervention. And we should hopefully have a collection of great examples that we can take to policymakers the next time they make reflexive policy moves. And I think the third lesson is we'll have to think very hard about the WTO rules on export curbs when governments are allowed to stop goods leaving their country rather than restricting movements into their country of foreign goods. And that is an area which I think will require some pretty tough negotiations. Ali, what are the takeaways for global Britain? It's interesting. I'm going to cheat a little bit because I sort of used this in an IOD webinar the other day, but it came up after a discussion about, particularly in Wales, where there is a higher agri-food component of the economy than in other parts of England, and it's similar for Northern Ireland. The issue came up of, you know, the fact that there was Polish 
beef on the shelves. And this was causing quite a, a stir because local farmers thought that they'd been passed over. And obviously supermarkets were just responding to just really unpredictable, crazy swings at the beginning of this outbreak in changes in demand. And what I said then, I would say here now, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with thinking more local. And that goes for, you know, how we are all living our lives at the moment, but making sure that you're doing it in concert with others, you know, because I think the more that you have these discussions about, you know, the the problems that we have or the challenges that we think we have on making sure that this episode isn't repeated again is one that all countries share. And so to make sure that we are, um, we are not in a, a boat on our own. And so that's, I think the most important part is to have that discussion with other people, even if it is a, how do we think more locally about um, national stockpiling is making sure you're doing it in concert with others. That's the biggest takeaway for me at the moment. Michael, it sounds like this question is rather more complex than some politicians would have us believe. Yeah, the question is very complex. I think part of the answer to the question is that at the moment, we don't yet know. We don't yet know quite how the international trading system is going to respond to the challenges of COVID as we emerge from the lockdown scenarios. It's important to remember that the crisis is not primarily a trade crisis. The crisis is primarily a collapse in supply and a collapse in demand, which then impacts on trade. And trade can mediate that, trade can help that, but you're not going to resolve the problem through trade, neither is trade the cause of the problem. So as we emerge from that crisis, we will wait to see how governments respond. There will be a lot of pressure on governments to resort to various forms of policies which impact on trade flows. These might be various forms of export incentives. It might be binational policies and so on. And there will be a lot of pressure on that. So time will tell how governments have responded and how well the global trading system, how well the WTO responds to those. In terms of the immediate responses and what we've immediately learned, I would echo what Simon has said. So I think there is a lesson to be learned about the restrictions on essential goods, essential medical goods, and trying to improve the system to be able to deal with that better in the future. I think the second point that I would make that we have learned is that in the face of such a crisis, it's extremely important to try and maintain the flow of goods and services. And in other words, to encourage as much trade facilitation as possible in the face of a crisis, be that to do with the mobility of trucks and labor, be that to do with air freight costs and so on. And we probably need to think more carefully about how we might respond to those costs and barriers to trade and the use of technology in facilitating that trade in the future. I feel that we've shared a lot of wisdom on this subject, and I'm very grateful to all of you for participating today. There, unfortunately, we have to wrap up our podcast. So many, many thanks to my guests today, to Michael Gasiorek, to Ali Renison, and to Simon Evenet. And many thanks to all of you for listening in. Join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.